o'clock on a Wednesday evening. Good evening. My name is Mark Riley, and this is the Mark Riley Show. We're here with you until 7 p.m., and uh, it was one of those weeks where there was a whole bunch, and I mean a whole bunch of news. Uh, and um, it's it's kind of, first of all, the big news is that it's not cold anymore. I, it actually hit 60 degrees here in the New York metropolitan area earlier today. So uh, good news on that front after we, you know, froze for so long, and I do mean for so long, um, we're in much, much better shape today. Uh, few people we need to say rest in peace to, first of all. Uh, Cardinal Egan passed away. They had a funeral for him at St. Patrick's Cathedral. Rest in peace, Cardinal Egan. Don't always, didn't always agree with him on everything, but he was the leader of the New York Archdiocese and uh, therefore worthy of some respect. A man named Wendell Middlebrooks, who many of you may not know by name, but you may have seen him on television in a couple of different series, and you probably know him best as the guy who starred in the Miller Lite commercial, uh, who was going up in football stands and talking about whether or not uh, people were able to or, or deserved to have uh, a Miller Lite. Uh, he passed away. He was only 36 years old, Wendell Middlebrooks. Uh, sad, sad to hear. And also New York Times reporter Claude Sitton passed away. Uh, Claude Sitton was a Pulitzer Prize winner and wrote largely on civil rights issues. Uh, and, and during a time, by the way, when it was dangerous for reporters to write about civil rights issues. So rest in peace, Cardinal Egan, Wendell Middlebrooks, and Claude Sitton. So the letter, you know, I, I don't know why. Uh, but ever since this whole brouhaha over the letter came out, the song by a group called the Box Tops, way back in the mid-late 1960s when I was a teenager, that song, which was called The Letter, keeps bouncing around in my head. Now, one has absolutely nothing to do, and I'm talking, of course, about the letter that was sent by uh, uh, 47, either 47 or 48 Senate Republicans to Iran, essentially saying that if they don't like the deal that the Obama administration strikes, which, by the way, they haven't struck a deal yet, um, and there are other nations involved, but if the Congress doesn't like it, uh, a future Congress or a future president would not be bound by it. Now, uh, there are a number of characterizations of this letter. Republicans, even Mitch McConnell, who I would think would know better, was sitting up trying to defend this foolishness. Every Republican running for president, uh, if they didn't sign on to it, and several did, Rubio, Cruz, Paul, the ones that are actually in the Senate. Uh, but, you know, Republican Republicans lined up, Republican presidential hopefuls lined up and say, yeah, yeah, go, go, go. Um, it's a load. The, I think it was seven Republicans that, that did not vote for it or did not sign the letter. They knew better. I don't know why these people would do this. The guy, Cotton, I think he's from Arkansas, was the guy that they put up as the straw dog in terms of this letter. And, you know, they really should have done better in terms of having somebody come up uh, with a little bit more smarts uh, to defend why this letter was sent. 
What this does, and let's be real clear about this, whether you're a Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, whatever, what this does is undercut any future deal, not just with Iran, any deal on any level. Because what it says is the United States is incredible. The United States can sign a deal, sign a treaty, sign whatever. And by the way, you might want to talk to some of the indigenous people in this country about uh, America's past with regard to abrogating treaties. But we'll leave that aside. That's another discussion for another day. The fact of the matter is this. Who's going to trust us? Who in the deuce is going to trust us? And why? Why did they do this? The only thing I can think of, and again, you know, maybe I'm not the deepest thinker in the universe. Maybe there's some other people that got better ideas as to why this is going on. They just hate Barack Obama. They just, they're saying, well, the minute he leaves office, all bets are off the table. And some, them, uh, some Republicans who signed this thing are trying to say, well, we need tougher sanctions. That's what works. Oh, really? It does? How does it work? If you believe that the Iranians are still in the process of trying to acquire nuclear technology to uh, devise some form of device, warlike device, nuclear bomb, as it were, what have sanctions done, and what do you think tougher sanctions are going to do? The only way this is going to work is to go to war. And the United States is not prepared to go to war with Iran. Nor is anyone, and I emphasize anyone, going to be seen as less than a pariah if they do some kind of preemptive nuclear strike against the Iranians. Because then you'll have the entire Middle East, including states there that are not that friendly to Iran, up in arms because they're going to have to worry about the fallout from a nuclear explosion or a nuclear bomb in the region. You know, the wind carries stuff all over the place, including throughout that region. But this, this, this is ridiculous. This is, and again, uh, even if you're not down with the negotiations, and to be quite honest with you, I don't think five of those 47 senators even know what the deal is that is being negotiated. And what do they think the five, the five other countries who are negotiating with Iran, along with the United what do you think they think, or don't they count in all this? The United States says, if we don't like it, if the Congress of the United States says, if we don't like it, we're going to pull out. Now, one of the interesting after effects to me of what's going on here is people starting to look at this and say to themselves, wait a minute, what threat do the Iranians actually pose to the United States? They ain't nuking us. Even if they developed a bomb, they're not nuking us. Now, I'm not taking the position that Iran is some Nirvana or that Iran is a government that should be trusted or that Iran isn't, in fact, looking to develop a nuclear device. See, because as far as the Iranians are concerned, if the Israelis got one, we should have one. That's how they look at it, right or wrong. Now, the United States doesn't look at it that way. The United States couldn't care if the Israelis had more bombs than we did, nuclear devices. Their interest, our interest, is supposedly 
in not allowing the Iranians to get one, no matter what else happens. It's something that needs to be thought about very, very seriously. See, because these 47 Republican senators are, to some extent, acting on our behalf. Now, you know, in the Senate, there's this whole veneer of civility. I guess that's the right term to use for it. They don't really dog each other out all that much, not publicly, not on the Senate floor, and usually not in statements. So what you see from Democrats in the Senate are, you know, um, statements that attempt to maintain some semblance of that same veneer. For example, Democratic Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia. Is the Senate capable of tackling challenging national security questions in a mature and responsible way? He also said it was a partisan sideshow. I would be a lot more blunt. Of course, I'm not in the Senate, so uh, I don't count. But I'd be a lot more blunt about this because it's ridiculous. Now, you know, Tehran has always said that the work they're trying to do is for energy and that their intentions are peaceful. Uh, you know, look, you can trust but verify. You can certainly trust but verify. These Republican senators believe that Iran has never and is never operating in good faith. Maybe they were listening to Netanyahu when he was over here. I don't know. All I know is that you give the Iranian hardliners, the hardliners, that we shouldn't make a deal with these, you know, Yankee imperialist dogs, them. You give them ammunition when you send a letter like this. Iranian Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif was quoted. Yeah. That the United States isn't trustworthy. He called the letter unprecedented and undiplomatic. He had earlier dismissed it as a propaganda ploy. Maybe it is. All I know is if you want to use the vernacular of the youth, of America, all you have to say is haters going to hate because this is all to me. This is all about Barack Obama. I don't care what these people want to say. This is all about Barack Obama and the deep and abiding and to be honest with you, vicious distaste. A lot of these folks and a lot of the constituents they purport to represent have against this president. Now. You know, if you want to depart from Obama on policy, as I have on many occasions, that's fine. All right? But I didn't hate George W. Bush. I'm sorry. I disagree with him fundamentally on a number of different issues. But I didn't hate the man. These people hate Obama. They wouldn't have... And somebody pointed out, I think it was... Uh, was it Bill Nelson, perhaps? Or was it Bob Nelson? It was one of the Nelsons. I forget which one. Um, and, you know, they said, he said, rather, that uh, Senate Democrats would never have done this to George W. Bush. Strong, oh, Bill Nelson, I'm sorry. Never contemplated writing such a letter when Bush was in office. Quote, you can disagree and you can disagree without being disagreeable about issues. That's that veneer of civility again, you know. Uh, my guess is that the White House 
may not have that civility behind closed doors. Matter of fact, maybe maybe the president threw something when he when he heard about this letter. It's just ridiculous. And by the way, there's also a, a real question about whether or not what the letter said, which is that Congress can negate these deals, whether it's true, whether it's uh, you know constitutionally justifiable. And the answer to that may well be no. I mean, you know, reasonable people can argue, and I'm not a constitutional scholar, but uh, it's just, it's ridiculous. Now, ladies, well, actually, I have a segment called To the Ridiculous, so maybe I should hold off on how ridiculous this particular thing is. Now, what follows is something that greatly troubles me because of the questions I have to ask about these incidents. For those of you who don't know, the police in suburban Atlanta shot an African-American man, Anthony Hill, 27-year-old Air Force veteran. He was naked and unarmed. Now, bottom line is, if you're naked, unless you're you know, some kind of a contortionist, it's very difficult to arm yourself. It really is, unless you got the gun in your hand and you're naked, and he didn't have a gun in his hand. Uh, groundskeeper in the apartment complex where Anthony Hill lived and died, so he was a calm, friendly person. To me, this was police abuse, because what can a naked person do? It's a very interesting question. This shooting is the third police killing of an unarmed or apparently unarmed black man in the last five days following shootings in Aurora, Colorado, and Madison, Wisconsin. And, of course, we've got Eric Garner, which wasn't a shooting, but it was a police killing, and Michael Brown in Ferguson. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation is examining this shooting. The the DeKalb County Police Department identified the officer as Robert Olson, been on the force for seven years, been placed on administrative leave, and to no one's surprise, well, I shouldn't say that, because black folks sometimes, black cops do this too, but this guy isn't black. They're placed on administrative uh, leave. Happened in Chambly, Georgia. And by the way, the apartment complex is mostly working class Latino families. Um, I don't understand it. I do not understand it. Um, and, you know, the whole... Well, I'm going to, I'll wait on this to ask the question that has troubled me for the last little while. Um, apparently, witnesses differ on exactly what took place. Uh, one witness said that uh, Anthony Hill had his hands at his sides and raised them parallel to the ground as he drew nearer to the officer. She corroborated another witness account that said that the men did not fight before Anthony Hill was shot. A third witness said she had seen Mr. Hill running toward the police officers from more than 20 yards away, but she couldn't see what happened when Anthony Hill got close. Now, here's the other interesting thing, or Trump. Cedric Alexander, the DeKalb County Deputy Chief Operating Officer for Public Safety, excuse me, I didn't even know they had such a title, said that this officer had a taser at the time. 
He said he did not know whether the officer had used it. None of the witnesses said they saw a taser used. So you got a taser and you still got the captive guy? Uh, Questionable circumstances, to say the least, but we have seen other questionable circumstances and we've seen the results of investigations into questionable behavior on the part of the police, whether it's on Staten Island or Chambly, Georgia. And now we switch our focus to Wisconsin. because I mentioned, there was a shooting in uh, Madison, capital of the state. Well, 1,500 demonstrators took over the capital yesterday. And these are protests surrounding the death of 19-year-old Tony Robinson, a 19-year-old unarmed biracial man shot by a white officer. Again, questions start to be raised in terms of the circumstances of this. Now, police allege that Robinson was shot after reports of a man jumping in front of traffic led to a chase, which took the officer, whose name is Kenny, I believe, yeah, Matt Kenny, into a home where the officer says Robinson allegedly attacked him. So the Wisconsin Division of Criminal Investigation is spearheading an inquiry into this matter. Now, both the mayor and the police chief have apologized for the shooting. And then there is a situation in Colorado where another young unarmed black man was shot and killed, Aurora, Colorado. Ironically enough, the same place where the uh, massacre in the movie theater took place. That guy ain't dead. This unarmed guy is. And nobody says that the guy, you know, uh, who's standing trial or whatever, nobody says he's supposed to be dead. It's just maybe a little bit of a difference in how people respond to certain situations. Now, here's my problem. And there's another, we're going to talk a bit about Ferguson a little little later on as well. But here's my problem. Uh, You have to look at these things, not as isolated incidents, but things to be taken together. Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Anthony Hill, Tony Robinson. I I can't pronounce the guy's first name in Colorado. But you have to ask yourself, and this, this is a question, okay? I'm not trying to impugn anybody's integrity, and I'm not trying to say that what the protests that have taken place across this country have gone for naught. However, you do have to ask whether movements like Black Lives Matter and other protests are having any kind of cumulative effect. The protests happen, and young black men, unarmed, are still being killed by cops. Now, that leads to another question. And, by the way, if you say that maybe these protests are not having the intended effect, that doesn't mean that violence is the way to get the intended effect. I'm not saying that in any way, shape, or form. However, you have to ask, 
Why do these things keep happening even in the wake of the protests? In the wake of disruptions that took place here in New York City, in the wake of the, the uprising that took place in Ferguson, Missouri. And by the way, I can go back in history and show you other uprisings in Harlem. Okay, we're back. Temporary glitch? No problem. We keep rolling. This is the Mark Riley Show. 26 minutes past the hour. We only had a couple of minutes that we were out for. And now we're all good. As we mentioned uh, when we were kind of temporarily interrupted there, the city manager of Ferguson has resigned by mutual consent. And as I was saying, the Justice Department accused Ferguson of using local policing courts to generate revenue instead of safeguarding citizens. What that means is the two out of every three black residents of Ferguson, Missouri, were the government's ATM machine. Fines, disproportionate tickets, uh, heavy fines for certain offenses that others don't get charged with, that sort of thing. Uh, And by the way, the report details numerous instances in which Shaw, this is the guy that resigned, seemed thrilled that revenue from court fees and fines was rising. When Shaw was told that gross revenue for 2012 had exceeded $2 million for the first time, the report said he responded by saying, awesome, thanks. Uh, He said he had been working to better Ferguson. If racist law enforcement and racist administrative Uh, shenanigans are the way you've done everything in your power to work with countless groups to bring about positive change and straighten our community, strengthen our community, then you need to be gone. Goodbye. See ya. Now, uh, hot on the heels of Ferguson's resignation comes a report that the police chief in Ferguson, Thomas Jackson, is expected to step down. They call him in the New York Times the embattled police chief of the Ferguson, Missouri Police Department. Actually, he's already resigned. According to a news flash from nine minutes ago, he's out. He's done. Uh, Goodbye. So long. He also was the focus of complaints of what they call racial discrimination. How about just straight up racism within his department? He's resigning his post. Of course, what happens in the future with the Ferguson Police Department is anybody's guess. Will they replace this guy, Jackson, with somebody just as bad? Will they replace the city manager who will simply open the top of that ATM machine, close it, and then start it back up again? And they'll continue to pick black people's pockets and lock black people up. And shoot unarmed black people. Is that is that the net result of all this? America, you see, is not nearly uh, about the business of change when it comes to racism, as a lot of people would like to think. 
even as a lot of black people would like to think. Oh, we have a non-racial society. Get out of here. We ain't got a non-racial society. We have a society that has found various and sundry ways to cover racism. Our next story will be all about that. Um, Because I'm sure many of you have heard about what's going on at the University of Oklahoma. Uh, Two students have been expelled. A fraternity on campus has been booted off campus. And now, by the way, there are questions being raised about the First Amendment and the First Amendment rights of of the students that were involved in this. What happened was a bunch of students from this fraternity were on a bus uh, Lord knows where they were going. I did read it somewhere, but it's immaterial. They're going somewhere, and they started a chant that said, ain't no N-words at whatever the name of the fraternity is. I'd rather see them hanging from a tree. Now, hey, you know, can't be halfway for the First Amendment. They got a right to say it. The question is, do they have the right to say it unimpeded? by any standards at a public institution. Because last I checked, University of Oklahoma is a public institution. And public standards of conduct were violated here. The first guy that was identified, Parker Rice, was identified by his high school. He's now withdrawn from the University of Oklahoma and is, quote, deeply sorry, unquote, for what he did. Now, was he deeply sorry or was he just deeply sorry he got caught? Here's a more of a quote from Parker Rice. Quote, for me, this is a devastating lesson, and I am seeking guidance on how I can learn from this and make sure it never happens again. My goal for the long term is to be a man who has the heart and courage to reject racism wherever I see or experience it in the future. Hey, if that's true, cool. If that's what it took to get you to start looking at yourself in that way, cool. You don't have to go on Dr. Phil even, although I'm sure he'll be calling, his producers will be calling. It's the Sigma Alpha Epsilon fraternity, which, by the way, has had a few black members through the years. And when I say a few black members, I mean a few black members. Now, uh, SAE's national leadership said the fraternity system does not teach such a racist, hateful chant. Nobody teaches a chant like that. Come on. Let's get real here. People make this stuff up. Look, I've ridden on buses all over America when I marched in the drum and bugle corps. We had songs. We had songs. There were some of them that were borderline racist, and people spoke up about them. You know, I was on a bus ride one time. And a dear friend of mine, who is gay, was gay, he passed away, was on the bus, and this one kid, it wasn't a kid, this one guy kept ragging on him. Hey, man, you a F word. You know the word, the pejorative term for a gay person. Hey, man, you a F word. You a F word. I mean, like, he did this for like 10 minutes. Everybody's standing there, because what he didn't know, but everybody else on the bus knew, 
was that the gay guy he was ragging on was a former Marine drill sergeant and well incapable of whipping his behind. So suddenly he sees nobody's laughing and the guy looks and says, what, you, you want to call me that? Keep calling me that. Come on, keep calling. And I'm going to bust. <laughs> you, you know what I'm talking about. Those of you who've been around for me, he's telling you, I'm going to bust you up. And somebody said to the guy real quietly, you know, he's a former Marine drill sergeant, don't you? And the look of panic on this guy's face, oh, oh, I didn't mean it, man. I, I didn't. And he backed this guy into a corner and made him say sorry for longer than he was calling the guy the F word. So you see, sometimes this stuff happens like that. But there was nobody on that bus that I saw in the video. Maybe there was somebody on there that said, hey, you know, you guys are going over the top with this crap. That's possible. Maybe just didn't get on the tape. The family of another student that was spotted in the video labeled his behavior, this guy named Levi Pettit, labeled his behavior disgusting and expressed apologies to the entire African-American community. Parents said they raised him to be inclusive. We know in his, we know his heart that he is not a racist. He made a, a, a horrible mistake, lived with the consequences forever. Now, the university didn't name either of these students. Their parents and one kid's high school ended up naming them. But the bottom line is that there are still people who now are saying, well, uh, were, his first, were their First Amendment rights violated? And in point of fact, some legal scholars say that uh, they might have a good case in court. Uh, now, <clears throat> I don't know if they actually expelled. I don't think they expelled this kid, Rice. He withdrew. Now, I don't know that they can say he had a First Amendment right not to withdraw. Now, you know, there, there's some history here, too, when it comes to this Sigma Alpha Epsilon fraternity. Um, you know, and, and by the way, they've had marches and rallies. See, again, and, and this is not to equate this to Black Lives Matter, but I do want to make the point that you can have marches and you can have rallies and, you know, you can do all of that. It's all good. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with it. But don't think that by holding marches and rallies, you're going to change somebody's mind. See, because these guys did this because they really thought there was no way anybody else would ever see it or hear it. They were on a bus among themselves. And there may have been, I mean, it was a 49, 50-passenger bus. There may have been five, ten guys who didn't participate, weren't down, but they didn't say anything. At least not the part on the tape. Didn't see it. So, uh, you know, there are some people who say that, uh, you know, that there's some eyebrow raising who are saying, uh, and this was in, in response to a statement made by the president of Oklahoma, David Bourne, who used to be the governor of the state, for goodness sake. Um, 
they're saying that uh, a president of the university speaks for the institution, and so they need to be pretty careful about what rhetoric they use. That's the concern I have here. First Amendment professor at UCLA Law School said that the move could start censorship envy. Uh, Look, you never know. You never know. If it's going to... See, again, this is really not about changing anybody's mind. These two kids... And I'm not saying they weren't genuine in the statements they made, apologizing and saying they were sorry. But... Had this gone on and no one been in there with one of those phones that seems to tape everything, videotape everything, I asked the question, would there have been a minute's worth of remorse out of any of these kids for what they did? Uh, My guess is no. Uh Uh-uh. No. It's something they did when they didn't think they were going to get caught which is, you know, the definition of infantile behavior, if you want to look at it from that perspective. Hell, I'm no Dr. Phil, but it's infantile behavior. But see, to me, there's a line that you can draw here. Not a straight line, but a line from Staten Island, on the one hand, to Ferguson, Missouri, on the other hand, to Aurora, Colorado, on another hand, to Chambly, Georgia, on another hand, Madison, Wisconsin, on another hand, and to Oklahoma. Now, nobody died in Oklahoma. I'm not trying to trivialize the deaths of these unarmed black men. But what I am saying is that if you take these things together, you realize, and I've said this many, many times over the years, racism is not going to die through legislation, racism is going to die through protest. And, and, you know, there has been a noble history of protest against racism in this country. Martin Luther King and others, whose names most people don't know. Fred Shuttlesworth. How many of y'all know about Fred Shuttlesworth? He's passed away now, but I had the pleasure of interviewing him. He was one of the people that helped bring Martin Luther King to Birmingham, Alabama. Most people don't know his name. He endured threats. I think they put, I'm not sure if he's the one they, I think they put a bomb under his house. You see, racism dies hard. And racism continues to exist in part because anytime somebody brings up a question, not a statement that somebody's racist, because not every incident is racist. Let's be clear about that. But when people question whether something's racist, oh, you're playing the race card. Oh, how dare you say this is racist. No, he's not a racist. Because it's a reflex. It's a reflex that deflects further examination. And the sooner we as Americans, not just as black Americans, not just as white Americans, But as Americans, the faster we understand that and speak to that reflex, maybe, just maybe, the faster things will start to change. And things do need to change. On to another 
I don't know whether you can say this is on a lighter note or not, but uh, a California federal jury told Robin Thicke and Farrell Williams, pay up to the tune of $7.4 million for copyright infringement. To wit, their song, Blurred Lines, one of the most successful songs of the 2000s thus far, was improperly drawn from Marvin Gaye's 1977 hit, Got to Give It Up. Now, it's interesting. I've heard people say straight up, same song. There's slight differences. I mean, I'm, I'm a person who's very attuned to music, very attuned. So there are slight differences. I can see how they may have tried not to directly copy. However, if you take the two songs, as one YouTube video did, by the way, <clears throat> and intersperse them, it sounds like one long song. Blurred lines and got to give it up. They also found for a much, much, much less smaller amount that uh, one of their songs uh, copied, uh, wh wh which one was it? Um, they copied After the Dance, as a matter of fact. Um, but they didn't get that much money for it. Now, the gay family was seeking $25 million. Now, uh, it's interesting because the high watermark before California court ordered Michael, Blow Michael Bolton to pay 5.4 for infringing on the Isley Brothers' love is a wonderful thing. So, and, and by the way, uh, Blurred Lines sold an incredible amount of money. An incredible amount of money altogether. And see, the way the music business functions now, not like in the old days, but the way it functions now, is it's not just about how many downloads or how many CDs. Or how many. There's a bunch of stuff that people make and make money off of that are not directly tied into downloads or the traditional way that people count the profits from a particular song. Tours, events, and especially events because radio stations now, not PRN obviously, but radio stations now derive a substantial amount of money from event, what's called event programming. I hope I'm not talking out of school here. But event programming helps radio stations bottom line immensely. And how that works? Somebody with a hot song like Blurred lines. They make a deal with one of the big radio operators. I'm not going to mention their names. Uh, you know, there's no need. But there are two major ones. Make a deal with them. They say, okay, well, you'll do this show, and you'll do that show, and you'll do the other show. And, you know, they make money. But maybe they don't make as much as they would if they were doing it independently. But in the meantime, the radio stations keep playing their music. And by the way, and this is kind of a, a side irritant of mine, my daughter listens to 
I guess what you used to call top 40 radio. Okay. What's now called in the business, in the business, CHR, contemporary hit radio. I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, that you can't ride in your car from Newburgh, New York to New York City without hearing at least one song played three times in that trip. The repetition to somebody like me who, you know, arguably loves music is enough to make me hurl. And, you know, I, I, you know, I heard Blurred Lines on account of my daughter listens to one of those stations. And at the time it was the big hit, they were playing it, it seemed like, every 20, 25 minutes. That drives sales, quiet as it's kept. And sooner or later, I guess, that cycle needs to be broken. But back to Pharrell and back to Robin Thicke. And by the way, the ironic part of this is, uh, oh, okay, uh, the gay family was trying to prove that uh, Robin Thicke's Love After War was an infringement on After the Dance. Now, it's interesting to me uh, because these things are, are, you know, very much uh, settled out of court in most cases. They settle them. Now, there were depositions that revealed that Robin Thicke lied in media interviews and was drunk and high on Vicodin. <laughs> and by the way, uh, what's interesting about this, to me anyway, is that uh, apparently Robin Thicke and them sued the gay family before the gays sued them, which is interesting. Now, you know, the representatives of Thick and Farrell and the rest of them, they say they need wide berth. Artists need a wide berth in their creative pursuits. Quote, we're going to show you what you already know, that no one owns a genre or a style or a groove. To be inspired by Marvin Gaye is an honorable thing. Interesting. Interesting. Um, and, and see, one of the things that's interesting about this to me, and I know I may be repeating myself and talking about what what is so interesting about it to me, but, you know, it used to be an axiom in the music business, which I have some familiarity with, that you can't copyright a rhythm or that you can't copyright a groove. And as a result, People felt, I guess, pretty comfortable with just ripping a groove. Uh, there are a lot of people who say, for example, that James Brown, who, by the way, uh, is the creator and inventor of some of the most complex polyrhythmic grooves known to man, known to mankind, certainly in the 20th century, that. People could rip him, and, and, and some argue they did rip him, and that he didn't, his estate didn't, didn't get paid for it either. You know, there, I can think of chapter and verse of songs where they literally included, uh, you know, his, uh, some scream or a grunt, or, you know, uh, Clyde Stubblefield's groove. <laughs> okay. Clyde Stubblefield was James Brown's drummer. Fantastic musician. All of that. Now may be open for question. 
as a result of this rule. I mean, I imagine they'll probably, you know, look to uh, appeal. But I, I got to be honest with you. I'm happy for the gay estate that they won this money. I really am. Because there, there, there has to be a line, not a blurred line, a distinct line drawn when people decide to kind of bite on other people's creativity. And in this case, the line will cost them 7.4 mil. Those of you who ever think you've been wronged by a consumer reporting agency will be happy to know. And by the way, uh, these three credit reporting agencies, TransUnion, Equifax, and Experian, they keep records on more than 200 million individuals. Well, they've agreed to overhaul their approach to fixing errors and their treatment of medical debts on consumers' reports. This is due to our Attorney General in New York, Eric Schneider. He announced that his office had reached a sweeping settlement with the agencies affecting consumers nationwide. It was prompted by an investigation that began three years ago in 2012. The credit bureaus have long been criticized for the convoluted process that consumers must endure to get their credit reports fixed, among other things, is according to the New York Times. Under the agreement, they will improve their dispute resolution process, which is largely automated. Press 1 if you have a beef. Press 2 if you think there's something in error. So, you, And by the way, uh, people who still use telephones will tell you, as I can, that there are fewer and fewer encounters with live bodies, no matter where, and I mean no matter where, you try and reach out to them. You want to call Social Security or Post Office or this one, press 2 if you know your party's extension. Well, if I knew my party's extension, fool, I would be calling the main number. I mean, come on. But anyway, it looks as though, uh, you know, they're going to mend their ways. And, and the other interesting and I think important part of this is that they're going to change how they deal with medical debt, debt that is accrued uh, because someone got sick. Uh, and, I mean, you know, you've always been able to contest what you feel are wrongful entries on your credit reports, but... The fact of the matter is, the bureaus often outsource thousands of disputes to workers overseas who are generally told to translate the problem into two to three digit code that's fed into a computer. The code and any documentation are sent to the creditor. The creditor verifies the information. No further investigation takes place. Now, these automatic rejections will no longer be tolerated. That seems to me to be pretty, pretty good news. Pretty good piece of news. Also, the credit bureaus have to wait 180 days, that's six months, to list any delinquent medical debt on credit reports. It's another victory for consumers. You know, sometimes delays in payment can hurt your credit. So it looks as though they've decided to kind of try and straighten that out. Now, we've got a few minutes left, and I want to talk a little bit here about Hillary Clinton and her emails. You know, this this is, some might say, a tempest in a teapot. It's a controversy. 
What controversy? To me, this is just another manufactured shibboleth on the part of the Republicans. What do they think? Do they need to have access to her plans for Chelsea's wedding or birth or whatever, you know, the birth of her, her child or whatever? Do they really need that stuff? As someone who has, you know, worked in, in a couple of different places, and I know I'm not saying anything <clears throat> about anything that's illegal, but there are times I have commingled my personal email with a work email. Why, you might ask? Because there are times when the work email doesn't function properly or it's slow. And my personal email, for whatever sets of reasons, and God knows I'm no computer geek, so I don't know, but my private email worked faster. So I tended to use my private email. Now, I see, I, I hate to be cynical about this, but I have to be. I get a sense that these people are looking to see whether or not they can find anything about Benghazi in any of these emails. Because they're still trying to nail her for Benghazi. And by the way, make it more difficult for her to get elected president, assuming she wins the nomination. Now, she said she turned over more than 30,000 emails to the State Department in December. She had deleted nearly 32,000 others. Yo, that's 60-some-odd thousand emails. What are they supposed to do, turn them all over to somebody over there? Some Republican? And they do. They're trying to, you know, uh, they're trying to pin Benghazi on her, and they think these emails will help them. That's why they're making a big deal out of this. She held a news conference the other day, and she was largely dismissive of a lot of the stuff that, you know, the Republicans have brought up. She said she erased records of communications about private matters like yoga routines, her daughter's wedding, and her mother's funeral. Uh, I, you know, her exclusive use of a private email account. That doesn't mean that was the only account she used, I hope. She said it would have been wiser to use a government email for official business. But she said she fully complied with every rule. Well, if you don't think she did, prove it. Don't waste people's time on this. How about doing something about income inequality or something? Because the next thing you know, they're going to hold another hearing and another committee and blah, 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 blah. Uh, locally. <clears throat> and I don't want people to think, excuse me, that, you know, every show I do has to have something about weed in it. Okay. Because it's not true. But this one does have something about weed. Um, Bill Bratton, the police commissioner here in New York City apparently believes that the spike in violence in this city in the first part of this year is somehow attributable to marijuana. Uh, you know, uh, I've never seen people reefered up and, you know, pulling guns on each other or whatever, but he believes uh, that homicides, which were up to 54 through March 1st compared to 45 over the same period last year, uh, that weed is a factor here. Quote, the seemingly innocent drug that's being legalized around the country. In this city, people are killing each other over marijuana. Unquote. Now, he's a police commissioner. He probably knows more about this than me, but I'm not sure uh, that, that there's, you know, some causal factor in the spike in violence 
and weave. I'm sorry. People get into personal beefs. People get, unless it's a war over turf, and there hasn't been a war over turf regarding marijuana in my memory in this city. So I don't know why it would suddenly rear its ugly head now, unless you want to make the argument that decriminalizing marijuana is creating turf wars, which I find absurd. I got to be honest. I find it absurd. Our final story, to the ridiculous, a guy writes on the side of his house, or actually the size, side of his ex-wife's house, my wife is a cheater. He spray painted it on this house. And then the house exploded and burned. Guess who they arrested? <laughs> my goodness. Former husband is an arson suspect after a burning house was found with my wife is a cheater spray painted in at least two places on the outside. Well, what did you expect? What did you expect? Hey, the phone's ringing. I guess that means it's kind of sort of time for me to go. Yeah, it is. It's two minutes before the hour of seven. Or maybe it's three minutes before the hour of seven o'clock. Either way, it sounds like it's time for me to go. I have had the most exquisite, exquisite, look at me, exquisite pleasure in speaking to you, our listening audience. Glad to have been here. Glad PRN is recovering from, you know, some some problems that I didn't even know the extent of. Uh, I mean, it, it, it must have been incredible, incredible to have been able to surmount you know, somebody hacking into your server, a pipe busting, all of that stuff. And that's a tribute to Jason Taubenfeld and the whole crew there. Gary Null for, you know, he could have thrown up his hand and said, hey, later for this, I'm going to continue to do the other work that I do. And he does a lot of other work. But he's gotten us back on the air, and I, for one, am glad. Stay tuned for all the great programming right here on the Progressive Radio Network. My name is Mark Rowley. This has been the Mark Rowley Show have yourselves a great rest of the rest of the evening and a better week ahead.